BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Good morning, everyone. I'm Alexi McCammond, a political reporter with Axios here in D.C., and I am filling in for the one and only Bill Press this morning. Uh, It is going to be a very exciting show after what was a pretty exciting primary night last night across seven states. Wild. Uh, You know this, that I didn't get to bed until almost 2 a.m., so chugging coffee this morning. I respect. I I have (laughs) given up on staying up late for primary nights. That's just not a thing that I do anymore. I used to, Yeah. but I don't do it anymore. The adrenaline. As much as I try to hate breaking news, I love breaking news, and I love that competition, so that the adrenaline just gets me. Um, But we have some really, really good guests here today to talk about all the latest news with us. Uh, at 7.30, we're going to have Anisha Singh, a senior organizing director of Generation Progress from the Center for American Progress. Uh, at 8 a.m., we'll have Carolyn Fidler, a political editor at Senior Communications Advisor at Daily Coast. And 8.30, Jessica Schulberg from Huffington Post, who's a foreign policy and national security reporter. So we'll be talking about the primaries, the travel ban, the latest SCOTUS decisions, um, the civility debate that everyone is loving having on Twitter. Um, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Let's say you are out of town. Let's say you're in New York and you, oh crap, I forgot my gym clothes. There is a new company called Routinely, which will rent you gym clothes. I want to be clear. You are renting used workout clothes. Ew. Yeah, no, it's a no for me. Ew. Uh, and I'm sure they're clean, and I'm sure that they do a good job with all that, but it's absolutely not. They're, it's called Routinely, and they launched their service mostly aimed at travelers. So if you go to New York and you forget to bring your gym clothes and you want to go to one of the many gyms in New York, they will rent you clothes for about $10 a day. Um, that's a no for me. 
uh, that's why I don't work out. That's the reason. <laughs> that's why? The yeah. clothes. I yeah. just get stressed I, out. As if I needed one more excuse <laughs> to not go to the gym. Oh, I forgot my gym clothes, and I don't think I'm going to wear somebody else's dirty, yeah. sweaty gym clothes. Who's responsible for washing those? Horrible. Uh, if it's not me, I don't want it. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good Like, point. I want to be the one to do it. I wonder what brand they are. I, you know, that's a good point. I don't know. They, they, they didn't really say but they, they described this as sort of like an Airbnb for gym clothes, oh, which God. is somehow grosser. Next up, underwear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, actually, right, they work with a number of brands, including Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, and Lululemon, as well as some smaller ones. Um, so you, if you want to get one specific brand, they charge you extra. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. You have to. So, again, that's going to be a no for me. Uh, This is kind of fascinating. There is a new list from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. 11 most endangered historic places in America. And one of them is Route 66. Route 66. It's it's like they've got a lot of problems with it. They've seen a lot of deterioration along uh, along the way. And, like, we're losing some of that stuff. Uh, some other things that are on the list, right here in the D.C. area, in Annapolis, the Annapolis City Dock area, huh. which is kind of a magical place. It's very cool. You know what one of the problems is? What? Rising water levels. Oh, my God. Climate change is actually <laughs> taking effect. Wow. There's some areas uh, in South Carolina. Uh, the historic resources of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands are also <laughs> on the list. Duh. Uh, And also here in D.C., the Mount Vernon and Piscataway National Park right here in Virginia. Uh, So that is also a problem. I need to go check those places out. Check it out before they're gone. gone. That's so sad. And don't do this. There was a woman in Alabama who was driving and decided that would be a great time to make a FaceTime phone call. No. Do not do that. Do not do that. She was driving at around 2 a.m., she crashed into a rock wall. She's okay, by the way. She's going to be fine, but do not. Yeah. Do not try and FaceTime while you are driving. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Good morning, everyone. This is Alexi McCammond, political reporter for Axios, filling in for Bill Press this morning. I am uh, basically clutching my coffee and will be doing that all morning. But I'm so excited to be here in the big chair with you guys and to talk about all the latest news. You know, Peter, I was hoping there's a lot to get through today. But I was hoping we could talk about something random that I found last night. I would love that. Uh, You're a dog owner. I am indeed. I'm a dog owner. Let me just pull this up. So basically the story goes, and I promise we will get to all of the serious news. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the story goes that this poor dog in the Isle of Wight was accidentally put up for adoption while his owners were hospitalized. That (gasps) is the most traumatizing 
Not only are your owners hospitalized, then you're suddenly up for adoption. Oh, no. And you didn't mean to be. Oh, I hate that. I He was a lab mix named Duke. Well, he's still alive, so he is. Okay, all right. You, you scared me. I okay. thought that something horrible no, would happen no, to Duke. No, no, no. He's a lab mix named Duke, and he was taken from his home when medics showed up to help his owners, and... There were just a series of miscommunications between an animal hospital oh, no. and a shelter. He was up for adoption. Luckily, he was reunited okay. with his owners. That's what I wanted to hear. I was like, this is just so messed up. My w- dog would not survive accidental adoption. No. He would be so nervous. I have a miniature schnauzer. He would be so nervous. He'd probably just spontaneously combust. Yeah. I have a I have a very anxious, nervous dog. And yeah, so you he know. would explode. I couldn't believe it. His head would explode. I was like, oh my God. Which reminds me of a wonderful Twitter thread that I found yesterday. I don't remember who put it up. Some random human who is a very good human who was like, (laughs) there are so many puppies up for adoption. Just FYI, everyone. Like in the middle of this crazy couple of weeks of news, he's just like, here's a Twitter thread of very good boys and girls who are up for adoption. Hell yeah. Beautiful dogs. I don't know who did it. I'll have to find it. Um, but it was an amazing thread. If you're listening or watching, I don't know if you have a dog, but you should probably have a dog. Yeah. Uh, you know what's great is after watching cable news for a couple of hours and, and feeling like your brain is swelling. Yeah. Just go sit on the front porch with your dog. Oh, yeah. What's better than that? It's amazing. I'll come home sometimes and I'm like, you have no idea what's been going on today. <laughs> exactly. And you don't care. You're, you're the so lucky happy. one. Yeah, exactly. You big, dumb animal. <laughs> yeah. I wish I was a big, dumb, well, a bigger, dumber animal. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's a tiny, dumb animal, but he's a very good boy. But if you have good boys or good girl dogs, you should let us know. We're on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show or on Twitter at at BP show. So tweet us photos of your dogs who have no idea what's going on in the I'm world. I'm so on board with this. I would love that. Please do it. And don't let them be put up for accidental adoption. For God's sake, no. <laughs> it's the little things. It's like those random stories that are like a little dark that I'm like, you know, this is what I need. But at least it has a happy ending. It does have a happy ending. I needed ending. the happy ending there. It does have a happy ending. Uh, and there were a number of happy endings last night in those primary elections. What a segue. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. My work here is done. You're um, I, You know, Peter, we were talking about this a little bit before the show started that watching the returns last night, I was kind of like, okay, there are a number, there were four incumbent Democrats in New York um, House members who are facing challengers to their left. And it was sort of the easy idea of, okay, here's the Democratic Civil War narrative. It's sort of the progressives versus the more moderate or establishment Democrats. But no one's really going to face that series of a threat. They have all been serving for a long time. New York is a pretty rigid place politically, and it's hard for insurgent newcomers to sort of break through into the scene, especially against these incumbents who have been around for so long. And then it was like... Nearly 50% of precincts had been reporting in New York's 14th district, which is where Joe Crowley was the rep for until last night. And his challenger was leading him in the polls. His challenger, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's a 28-year-old Latina woman who is a native of the Bronx. Her mom is Puerto Rican. She is very progressive, pretty socialist, was a former Bernie Sanders organizer, and she consistently led... Joe Crowley in the polls all night. And it was just this rush of adrenaline, not only because I'm a news junkie and love following breaking news, but because it was the clearest example yet, I think, of progressives really breaking through 
in the Trump era and under Trump in these primaries. Yeah, I mean, it was... Last night was wild. Mm -hmm. Last night was completely wild. Like, I don't think we can understate how wild it is. Like, I think we're. I'm good at doing that. I'm good at being like, well, I shouldn't be surprised. That was genuinely surprising. Well, it's funny because yesterday on the show we talked about uh, specifically the Joe Crowley uh, race, and we pointed out that like this guy was going to be the Speaker of the House. Yes. Like, like could have could have happened. Yes. Uh, One of the most visible Democrats in the House. Uh, but at the same time, I think you have to call him what he is. He's a centrist, fairly milk toast Democrat. Yeah. And I do, and, and like you and I were talking before the show, right? The the most recent, and I hate to give some uh, uh, credit to another podcast besides our own, <laughs> <laughs> but This American Life, which does a very very good job. Yeah. They actually talk about this rift within the Democratic Party, and they focus specifically on a candidate in New York, Jeff Beals, about. You've got these Democrats that are trying to reclaim the mantle of what progressive means, right? right? Like progressivism and national Democrats had a platform of what now would be considered a far left platform, right? right? Like I think we can thank Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton for sort of taking Democrats towards the center to where now they are essentially conservatives and the conservatives gone so far right that like we're missing the leftist politics but uh you've got jeff beals you've got cynthia nixon um you've got all these very progressive democrats and that will not apologize that have no interest in working with republicans and trying to find common ground with republicans right can they win and the answer is yeah, yeah, they can. Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Stacey Abrams, did yeah, did not care about pandering to white working class voters. Was like, I'm not going to follow that playbook. No, and she won her primary. No, and the point is, if you go out there and you offer people something, genuine. and then you it's genuine, and then you can deliver on it, you don't have to worry about those voters. They'll come yeah. along. Right. They'll come along. Right, because if you're if you're a Democrat who wants to vote for a Democrat or who wants to vote against the president, which we've seen people want to do in the midterm sure. elections, you will not vote for the Republican candidate on the ballot. Right. I guess you could sit home, but I think that after 2016, I would be surprised if people stayed home. They yeah, feel like this is that, their yeah. biggest chance since then to yeah, make a difference. Totally. So why would I mean, we'll see. Turnouts are already always low. But if you are in a, you know, a district that has a centrist, boring very safe Democrat. Demand more. Yeah. Demand more. Yeah. I am curious, like, the people who who do want moderates in the Democratic Party. You know, I, I don't, like, that's what I struggle with trying to figure out, too, is that under President Trump, when people have always been unhappy with Washington and Congress and the way that they don't get things done, like, do do they look at moderates, Democrats, and say, you are someone who is more willing to work with the other side, therefore you have a greater chance of getting things done? Or do they see how the president and Republicans have no interest in working with Democrats, no matter how moderate they are, and yeah. they and recognize that even a moderate Democrat might not be able to make it? You know, I'm not sure where this myth was born, that you have to be a moderate Democrat. Uh, Jimmy Carter is sort of where I look at, where it kind of yeah. started. But I always use the example of West Virginia. Because West Virginia now, people assume, oh, Joe Manchin has to essentially be a Republican to win, which yeah. is BS. West Virginia was a Democratic state, a, yeah. a very, very blue state yeah. for years, up until like 20 years ago. Remember right. Robert Byrd? Yeah. 
put the aside the fact that he was a former Klan member, but he was he was a strong Democrat. Yeah. Uh, and you've had a long history of Democratic governors in West Virginia, and all of a sudden this narrative is born that you have to be somewhat conservative, socially conservative, right. or whatever it is, right, depending right. on the district. And it's just not true. Right. It's just absolutely not true. I also think it's interesting that if you go to a DNC event or an event hosted by National Democrats, they have these videos that are like, we are the big tent party. We love diversity. We value people from all walks of life and all ideologies. And it's like, but you don't when it comes to candidates. No, not at all. You have a very specific type of candidate who you want to talk about the economy and healthcare and their willingness to work with Trump when it helps their districts. Yeah. You don't want them to talk about anything else. You don't really want them to look like anything else than what we currently have our folks in Congress looking like. Um, and I've written about this. I wrote about, I had this piece a few weeks ago about, you know, there are at least or have been at least 43 black women running as Democrats this cycle. The DCCC, which is the National Party's um, campaign arm for congressional races, only backed and is backing one. Since that story came out, there have been nine, I believe, black women Democrats who won their primaries. Either the DCCC hasn't reached out to them at all, or and they're not supporting any of them. Come and they have, at, and they're all running in Republican districts. And all of the candidates on their red to blue list are running in Republican districts. It's, it's, that, that is absolutely insane. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. And I think my takeaway right now for where we are in this moment in political history, uh, politics have changed. Yeah. Duh. Right? Right. Breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the difference is the Republicans have seen how politics have changed, and they will not only accept someone like Donald Trump, they will actively work to make – his, I hate to say his agenda, because I don't even think he has an agenda, but like they will work to make him successful. Right. That's their right. president, like it or not, yep. flawed as he is, they don't care. They're pushing forward. Yep. They're going to push forward. Right. And Democrats are still like fighting petty, petty battles. Right. Like yeah. the DCCC is poison. And that's where all of this tension or this weird dynamic is coming from too because like we see the republican party coalescing around this idea of trumpism and like very few republicans are willing to speak out if any and if they do it's because they're not seeking re-election and they have nothing to lose but the rest of them whether candidates or those who are serving will be loyal to trump they'll be loyal to the party and move forward on whatever the party wants to move forward on democrats are rebelling against their own yeah. because they're like we have no actual progressive forward-thinking message except for from the progressive candidates and folks who are running donald trump is the culmination of years yeah. of Tea Party politics, right? Like, yeah. I'm old enough to remember when the Tea Party started <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, many, many years ago. I think you could probably point it to, to Sarah Palin when she was running with John McCain. That was sort of the beginning yeah. of the Tea Party. And all these years later, eight years later, uh, that vision was realized when they got a Tea Party president in Donald Trump. Now, call them what you will. Democratic socialists or the far left wing of the Democratic Party or hyper progressives or whatever they are, that is, and I hate to make this analogy because it's it's not necessarily fair because 
for a lot of different reasons, but they are the Tea Party of the left. Mm-hmm. They are the Tea Party of the Democratic yeah. uh, yes. Party. And if there's a lesson to be taken away, that did pretty well for the Republicans. Yep. Long game, I think it's going to bite them in the ass. Right. But it worked out pretty well for them. They got right. the House, they got the Senate, and they got the Presidency. Right. Right. And they got the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, like, yeah. By any measure, it's been successful Republicans. Right. So why don't Democrats just completely embrace it and go hog wild? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see their strategy in 2022. You know, I know we're still in the thick of 2018, but I love thinking about whether or not they'll figure all this out by 2020. But um, I don't know. I mean, and in addition to Democrats last night, the president had some wins. You know, he endorsed uh, Henry McMaster for governor in South Carolina, who won his runoff last night and will now be uh, in the general. Dan Donovan, he endorsed who is facing Oh, this is like a wild story. It's like I cannot imagine being in jail and then at all, full stop. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah. then I can't imagine getting out of jail and being like, you know, I'm going to run for office again. Yeah. Like I, I would never, I wouldn't, if I went to jail, I wouldn't go back to Axios and be like, can I have my job? It's gutsy. <laughs> it's gutsy. I'm a little annoyed because like Michael Grimm gave me hope, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, if nothing else, Michael Grimm gave me hope. In like what if, way? In that if you can screw up so bad that you get sent to jail that you can then come back and run for political <laughs> office and get your job back. Uh, like, I'm just going to go try some risky things. Yeah, why not? See what I can do. Get yeah, away why, with. Totally. Yeah. Um, totally. But yeah, so, the, you know, President Trump did have some wins last night. And then that's the other trend to follow for everyone listening and like as we get closer to November is just the way that he is intervening in primaries across the country and the way that he has been largely successful. It is fascinating to watch his power move in that way. If he thinks you're disloyal to him, your congressional career can end. If he supports you and endorses you more often than not, you win and everything is totally fine. Um, I love that he tweeted uh, about Joe Crowley's loss. Oh, yeah. And he sort of took credit for it. Yeah. Which is kind of nuts. Do you have the tweet? I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. I'm just looking yeah. for it because he, he tweeted about, yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> this is his tweet from last <laughs> night. Wow. Big Trump hater Congressman Joe Crowley, who many expected was going to take Nancy Pelosi's place, just lost his primary election. In other words, he's out. That is a big one that no one saw happening. Perhaps he should have been nicer and more respectful to his president. And I left out all of the grammatical errors in that tweet because there were several. But, like, Joe Crowley did not lose because he was not respectful to Donald Trump. No. I also love his ability to make it about him. But, uh, exactly, and I tweeted about this last night, that Joe Crowley didn't lose like Republicans who wanted Joe Crowley to be nicer and more respectful to the president were not the ones who voted him out last night. Right. The people who voted Joe Crowley out last night were Democrats. Right. And there were Democrats who wanted a Democrat who were not going to be nice who would and not going to be respectful. Who would be more disrespectful to yeah. the president. Yeah. They don't want, they want someone who, and that like, I that, yeah. I think that he is really, after he used the term red wave for the first time last week about the whole immigration debate um, and separating families and said, you know, this the worst things look on immigration, the better chance we'll have for a red wave. Now he's like looking, I think, for any 
example to support that theory that there's a red wave happening instead of a blue wave. You know, there was a moment for me where I thought to myself, oh, man, we are so screwed. And that was on the day of the inauguration when Donald Trump goes to the Oval Office and he's signing all sorts of things. And Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were there grinning and laughing and fighting over who could get the pen that the that Donald Trump used to sign stuff. And I'm just thinking to myself, are these the Democrats that are going to save us? No, absolutely not. Yeah. Well, absolutely not. And, and to see all of these Democrats who have told us for months dur- during the campaign this is not normal. This should not be allowed. Right. This is not acceptable. Right. We are better than this. To go there and glad hand and fight for a little piece of memorabilia from Donald yeah. Trump's first day of uh, in office. No. Yeah. No. I mean, luckily they have uh, been outspoken against him since then. But at the same time, we I mean, again, not to keep harping on last night's race with Joe Crowley and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but we see how people, voters and Americans across the country have uh, a lower and lower tolerance for elected officials who work with the president, who they think uh, align with him too closely. We saw this yesterday in a new poll that showed Barbara Comstock, the Republican rep in Virginia 10, trailing behind her Democratic challenger by 10 points when she pretty handily won re-election. Hillary Clinton won her district in 2016. So there, she's, she's considered vulnerable. But the, a big part of her trailing behind is because something like 35% of voters think that she is too close to the president. And he is such a liability for Republicans alone that if you're a Democrat who's viewed as being anywhere close to him, you are kind of screwed. If you're a Democrat that voted for literally any one of Donald Trump's nominees or appointees, mm-hmm. right, for the cabinet, if you oh, voted yeah. for any of them, yeah. I have no tolerance for mm. you. And I, I, I would imagine a lot of people feel that way. And I, I think that's how it should be. And, and I think that there was a this is this is what we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah. Like Democrats feel like they have to make concessions and they have to work with the other side. Yeah. I mean. There were Democrats who voted for Scott Pruitt. There were Democrats who voted for Tom Price. Yeah. There were Democrats who voted for Ryan Zinke. There were Democrats who have voted for it. Take your pick. Right. Ben Carson. Take your pick. Yeah. Any one of these horrible, horrible cabinet members uh, got Democratic votes. And if I was in a district and one of my senators voted to confirm Jeff Sessions, mm. uh, that's 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 a deal breaker. That's it's, a deal breaker. Especially because I would imagine that is just out of line with their their personal values and things they're considering when they're going to the polls. Like yeah. Jeff Sessions is moving forward on some of the president's most controversial policies and cracking down on so many things that affect so many people that I would imagine if you're a voter who is against those things, you'd be less willing to support a Democratic elected official who supported him. If my member of Congress or if my senator voted to confirm Jeff Sessions, I would be livid. Mm. I would be livid. Yeah. And if there was a 28-year-old activist, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, like the one that took down Joe Crowley, I'd vote for I'd, I'd vote for him or her, whoever. Yeah. I, it, full stop. I don't care. 
If you come out and you're strong on progressive values and you say, I'm not going to enable this president, you got my vote. Yeah. I don't care. The Also, you know, I noted this last night in something I wrote about the primaries that the timing and I don't want to, you know, like minimize her campaign or anything, but the timing of her campaign cannot be overstated. We are in the middle of this national debate, maybe international debate about immigration, separating families. One of her campaign platforms is to abolish ICE. She is a Latina woman. Her mom is Puerto Rican. She is at the protests at detention centers like you, you could not think of a more 2018 thing than this happening right now and i think it really is a powerful symbol for what could happen and what where the party could go under president trump who is fighting against all of these things um I, I, i'm gonna say something which i know is controversial among our listeners right but this is sort of bringing it back to bernie sanders <laughs> in 2016 uh, who was as radical as Donald Trump in, yeah. a, in a completely different uh, direction, but as radical, uh, and damn near won, and would have probably won had it not been for other factors, but that's a whole other issue. But like, I think the message there is, if you've got some credibility that you could stand on that foot and say, I'm a real progressive I'm a far left progressive. I want Medicare for all. Yeah. Which is a lot different than some of the other stuff that like when you hear people talk about, you know, expanded Obamacare and all that yeah. type of stuff. Medicare for all is very, very clear. The government runs health care. Yeah. And unless you say I will accept that and nothing else. People will vote for you. Yeah. People will vote for you. Yeah. We see how voters want that more yeah. and more. Yeah. Um. Before we start talking about the travel ban with our first guest, I guess we should talk a little bit about Sarah Sanders because there's a new development after that whole red hen thing, just thinking about people close to Trump. Um, And we'll be talking about protests as a form of sort of personal confrontation later in the show. But, you know, if you uh, need a quick catch up, she went to a restaurant called the Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia. Um, the owner, I believe, of the restaurant denied serving her because of her affiliation with the administration and everything she does under President Trump. She made a big deal about it. There's been a huge debate online and I guess all over the country about whether or not that was right in civility. Long story short, she now is getting Secret Service detail for the first time since serving under the president, I think, in the coming days i don't know how i don't think they've released details on how long it will last or how many people or the cost um but i'm i mean one i'm not super surprised by that um but i am curious if this is setting a precedent for other folks around him like who's next right this is a stunt this is a stunt by the trump administration and this is something that like George W. Bush did, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he would play stunts with these pretty serious issues. I mean, the amount of money that we're about to spend to to have Secret Service follow Sarah Huckabee Sanders around because she was politely asked to leave a restaurant. And the reaction from Republicans and and conservatives that I've seen on on, uh, the trash heap that is Twitter... Uh, <laughs> I've seen so many people saying like, oh, we're ready. Like, we know it's coming. They think right. that because she was politely asked to leave a restaurant after she was served a meal, by the way, 
Yeah. Uh, uh, saying like, I'm locked and loaded. I got, you know, I was reading tweets the other day about people that were saying like, I've got my canned goods, I got my ammunition, I got my guns. When the war comes, I'm ready. And they think that this is some sort of call to arms. Yeah. Does she need Secret Service protection because she was politely asked to leave a fancy restaurant? Right. No is the answer. Right. If she didn't need it before, she doesn't need it now. Right. I also, I mean, I, I'm not going to diminish threats because especially as a woman, I don't want to be threatened in any case, uh, in any way. Totally. I don't know what her threats are like, but I would also imagine, unfortunately, these threats against her have probably existed yeah. throughout the entire right. time she's right. Right. this position. I, I, I don't think that what happened to her was a threat. Right. I'm not discounting the fact that yeah. she's probably gotten some nasty threats. I'm sure of it. Right. But have they increased or gotten worse because of this? Right. I don't think so. I would imagine so. it's the other way around. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. The red hen that's unaffiliated here in D.C. has been threatened. People have threatened to burn the building down. Yeah. Like, that is horrible. Yeah. Any restaurant called the Red Hen, because there are others, yes. right? There's, there's like and there's some, another service or some sort of yeah. company called the Red Hen, but it's not a restaurant. There's one in Connecticut. There's yeah. one in, in New Jersey. But, like, people think it's a franchise or something like that. So they're just calling and saying, like, right. horrible, horrible things. Right. Let's it's get just... them secret service. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Um, but we have our first guest, Anisha Singh, coming up from the Center for American Progress. So we will be right back to talk all about the travel ban and SCOTUS. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Alexi McCammond, a political reporter with Axios, filling in for Bill Press. Right now, I'm joined by Anisha Singh, who is the Senior Organizing Director of Generation Progress for the Center for American Progress. Welcome. Good to see you. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for being here. You can follow Anisha on Twitter at Anisha underscore S113. And you can see all of their work online at AmericanProgress.org. So we're going to talk a lot about the travel ban for this next half hour. And I think there is probably a lot of questions that people still have about it. Um, a lot of questions that people have now that the Supreme Court has made the decision. I think the interesting thing here, I guess the argument from those in favor of the Supreme Court decision is that conservatives have been on a sort of winning streak with the Supreme Court in the past couple of days, the past couple of weeks, whether um, you know it's siding with anti-abortion folks or those who are against um, gay marriage and now the travel ban. So I guess one, would you, do you consider this a win for conservatives, the travel ban decision? Unfortunately, it is. And this was, this is not a surprise for a lot of us who have been working in the court space for a while. Um, we saw when President Obama was president that he nominated a Supreme Court justice. And let's not forget Merrick Garland, um, who was supposed to take that ninth seat, um, take Scalia's seat. But instead, um, what Mitch McConnell and the rest of the GOP Senate did was block Merrick Garland from being confirmed day after day for over a year and waited for their president to take office. Um, and once Trump took office, he nominated Gorsuch, and they quickly, as fast as they could, put Gorsuch through and that included breaking the rules that that existed at the time, which meant that there was supposed to be a 60-vote threshold in order for a Supreme Court justice to be confirmed. And now it's a 51 majority just for Gorsuch. They broke precedent. They broke the rules um, just to make sure that their judge was in. And now you're looking at 
this um, anti-choice case that you're talking about, this uh, Muslim ban case that came out yesterday, both were 5-4 decisions that yeah. could have gone 5-4 the other way if we had Merrick Garland in place, if they hadn't politicized our judiciary. Right. Um is there anything about their decision that was surprising to you? I know some folks are pointing out this idea that the justices didn't consider the president's comments, which a lot of critics were saying, you know, you have to take the way he talks about immigration and folks from other countries into consideration when you're thinking about this policy that he's putting forward. Um, were you surprised by that decision by the justices? Yeah, or? absolutely. There were so many lower courts and circuit courts, appeals courts that all kind of pointed to what Trump was saying on the campaign, his behavior, um, his attitude towards minorities and Muslims in particular. And we hoped that that would, uh, you know, create a whole picture and a holistic picture for um, the justices as to what his intent was. Um, but it doesn't seem like they were paying much attention to that, at least not the majority. And especially when we look at um you know, the the way that the first Muslim ban er iteration was came out, it was completely Muslim uh, countries. Um, just by adding a couple of non-Muslim countries and removing a couple of Muslim countries does not change that intent. And we were hoping that, you know, the justices would see that. Right. And for those who, um, I don't know, maybe need it spelled out a little more, like, can you speak to, from your perspective, what you think the intent is behind this? I know that, you know, the administration and President Trump himself has said it's a travel ban. No, it's not. It has nothing to do with fear of the other. Um, there's no coincidence. But now we see everything happening with immigration. We remember the way that he's talked about immigrants and people who don't look like him since before he took office. Do you think there is some sort of political calculus behind it? Do you think it's a personal decision? What do you think is the intent behind his push for this so-called travel ban? I think he's adhering to his base. His base wants to see, um, you know, their, their own power. They, they want to make sure that they're the majority and that they yeah. are uh, being overly conservative when it comes to their security. And there's, there's a lot of fear-mongering that we see happening on the right all the time. Even though we know, statistically, there are more white shooters who yeah. are... Um, killing Americans, it's it's you know this this narrative, this rhetoric that Muslims are coming to this country and they are killing our people. When realistically, other than 9/11, the majority of people who have been killed have been through white shooters. But there's no rhetoric around how we we fix that. There's no conversation about gun reform, gun control. We right. can't have those conversations because there's too much attention on well Muslims, right? And the media plays a part in it too. There's a lot of talk about. Um, when there is a white shooter, we talk about mental health. We talk about, um, you know, what could have what, what happened in that person's life. This is a tragedy. And right. when it's a Muslim shooter, it's a terrorist. What were they associated with ISIS? There's no conversation about mental health um, or, you know, what could we do to fix this problem other than let's ban them. So there's right. this narrative that's been going on for a very long time. And we've seen it post 9-11 all the way up till now. Um, so he's just really adhering to that base that has been so scared and been yeah. um, really following that rhetoric from day one. And then it's also, you know, uh, when you can say this is for national security, you get away with a lot. And I think mm. that's what happened. And that's what Sotomayor said in her dissent as well. You know, when you have that, you masquerade it with a facade, is what she said, of yeah. national security. You get away with a lot. Um, but when we, we know that the intent was really just to be discriminatory. Right. Uh, and why, what... I want to know from your perspective, too, and I obviously can speak from my 
my own perspective, but what are the larger implications of this moving forward? Whether it is using national security as a sort of facade or a blanket um, justification for these different things, or it is continuing to pander to his base who want to maintain um, sort of the majority of the country. What are the larger implications moving forward? So one thing is for sure, we whenever this happens, whenever the president um, is given kind of this green light that what he's doing is correct, we see his base feel empowered mm. and it creates a, a, a uptick in hate crimes profiling bullying yes. in our country. Yeah. Right after he was um, right after the election, there was 700 plus hate incidents that occurred in that first week. Wow. Um, and we see that every time this happens. So every time um, the courts or or, you know, any other win happens for this administration, we see an uptick. So that's mm. that's number one. I think we all need to be wary and careful and protect our Muslim brothers and sisters and those who look Muslim, the, you know, our Sikhs, South Asians, yeah. others, um, especially those at gas stations and our cab drivers. These are the yeah. ones who usually fall victim first, um, children in our schools. Um, but then there's also the the precedent that this sets, right? Um, this president now thinks that when he does something discriminatory, the courts will have his back. Mm. Um, he knows that the Supreme Court has his back. He is very confident to fill many more Supreme Court um, seats, uh, right. whether, you know, we're, we're all debating whether or not Kennedy is going to retire this week, yep. which is also a terrifying thought. Um, so there's also that. And then there's also him thinking that whatever executive orders he can come up with next will go through, right. even if they're being blocked in the lower courts by the time they reach the Supreme Court. And they will, because usually what the what the president puts forward is controversial enough to make it land in the Supreme Court. He feels empowered and that's scary. And then I think yeah. the final thing is when when you, um, you know, as a person in the in the states are, are feeling like your um, president's rules are being confirmed by the rule of law. Um, it means that you yourself are kind of emboldened to to hate and to profile and to bully. So it's just that concept of what my president is doing is right. The, the law says so. Right. And, you know, that's something President Trump said himself after this decision that he felt totally vindicated. And I think we have a, an audio clip of him, Peter, where he's sort of taking a victory lap almost, um, sort of reacting to the decision right after it happened. That's the final word. That's the Supreme Court. Now, do I want to go in with a different one and maybe a different variety? I don't think there's any reason. That's a very strong victory. Very strong. So he said, you know, the Supreme Court decision is the final word. Basically, that's it. Speaking to all the points you were making, that he's sort of backed up by the rule of law, by the Supreme Court. Um, but is this decision the final word? Is this, is upholding the travel ban permanent? Is that, is this the end of it? So I know that it has to go back down to the lower courts and they're going to now apply this. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court did rule so broadly on this and they gave so much leeway to Trump's side of this. Um, I am concerned about how it ends up playing out. Um, but but nothing is ever permanent. Um, mm -hmm. There's always ways. And I know people in Congress, uh, Democrats in Congress are thinking, what is the kind of legislation that we could be putting forward to kind of um, lessen the damage that this might have. Um, and I think we all need to be thinking through what that could mean. And I think um, we also need to be thinking about elections. And I know this is becoming such a cliche thing to say, but unless we win back the Senate, it's going to be very difficult to win any more fights in the judiciary and to stop the judiciary from being Trump's mouthpiece. 
Um, we have so many lower court vacancies right now in the district and circuit court. And we saw it this morning itself. There was a lower court that stopped um, the separation of families yes. on the borders. So yeah. we need to protect our lower courts more than ever before. And we need to make sure that if Kennedy tomorrow does retire, that we are protecting that seat and making sure it's the seat for the people and not for this administration. And the only way to do that is by winning back Senate seats Um and, and, you know, the House is really important, but they don't have a say in our courts. Only yeah. the Senate does and the president done, does. And we don't have a say in the president for a while. So the Senate is really important. And I think everyone needs to galvanize around that um, because we have to balance out some of these really, really extreme nominees and confirmations that we're getting. Some of these lower court judges have said the most terrible things that LGBTQ individuals are degenerates and mm. that affirmative action is the same thing as slavery mm. and that abortion is basically the demons. And, you know, they, they're taking it back um, centuries and they're taking it super extreme. And we just need to make sure that we're protecting our courts now more than ever. And that's such an important point, because when I talk to conservatives, whether lawmakers or groups, they are so clear that they are firing up their voters or trying to by saying, look, if you want to appoint more conservative judges and justices, you need to vote for more Republican senators. Mm -hmm. But I have not heard the same from Democrats. And it, it's surprising to me. Yes, it is so frustrating. For, for decades, conservatives are really good at rallying people who are Supreme Court voters. We're not as yeah. good. And I know Hillary Clinton tried that a little bit in 2016. She's like, guys, we have a right. vacancy, but it's just not something in our polling that we see uh, progressives going to vote based on the Supreme Court. It's it's not the thing that galvanizes. And partially because we have so many immediate fights that we're so focused on, right? Like currently mm. there are children being separated from their parents. Right. There are women who are being denied um, choice, right? There, there are right. so many other issues that our side deals with. We have to remember the long-term implications, um, and we really have to remember that these are lifetime appointments. So, yeah. and, and Trump is really nominating the youngest of the youngest. Some people might remember the YouTube video that went viral of the, the one nominee that was in the judiciary, and he had never done trial before. And it's just because Trump is trying to put out yep. these these individuals that have his ideology but might have no legal experience. But if they're young enough, they'll last not only for our children's generation, our children's children's generation. So we have to stop that. We're so focused on these two-year, four-year, six-year right. terms. But right. we need to worry about these li lifelong um, appointments. And I don't think that can be overstated. You mm -hmm. know, I think that this week and the past two weeks alone with these SCOTUS rulings have been a shock, obviously, to critics, uh, a celebratory moment for those in favor of it. But it really does speak to this idea that we can't be so focused on the immediate, you know, fire that we need to extinguish or the next election coming up. And I'll remember during the 2016 election, I'm sure you do, too, that a lot of people were saying, well, if Trump gets elected, he's going to fundamentally change the Supreme Court, which has implications for decades and decades. And that message didn't really stick then. And I'm really curious to see if and how Democrats try to reclaim that narrative now and and peter if we could play another clip i know we have um cory booker who had a reaction to this decision this is a moral moment in america where we're seeing with a chilling regularity a moral vandalism on the rights and the ideals of who we are as a country moral vandalism on the rights and ideals of who we are as a country i think is a really powerful mm way of framing that. Do, does that sort of rhetoric from Democratic lawmakers, especially in the Senate, give you hope for how they can sort of use this 
moving forward to encourage voters to be more active? Or do you think that's not enough? I hope so. I I remember during the um, Gorsuch fight, we had to convince some Democrats that we should not be voting for Gorsuch because Mm -hmm. it could have implications. And I really hope that's not the case in the future. Um, Progressives that in general don't have as much capacity in the advocacy space on courts for the same exact reason. It's not something that's invested in. Um, And I think it's really important that Senate Democrats, even though we are the minority that hold the floor, hold the ground on a lot of these really extremist nominees um, and don't even let even just a little bit of, um, you know, wiggle room for Republicans to get some of these guys through. Um, It's super important. And Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are newly um, added to the Judiciary Committee, and they have been really great advocates. They've been very loud um, and clear that these nominees cannot go through. And it has it has shifted the Judiciary Committee dynamics quite a bit and really challenged some of the Republicans on that committee um, to do better. But we do know that Chuck Grassley, um, and this is really important for viewers and listeners um, to know, um, Chuck Grassley, as of a month or two ago, just uh, completely got rid of another tradition that has been around for a century, the blue slip rule. I don't know if you know about this. No, I don't. But basically for lower court nominees, it is um, it has been a century long tradition that um, home state senators turn in a blue slip of paper to the judiciary chair saying, yes, I approve or no, I do not approve mm-hmm. of this nominee for my state. And the reason for that is, hey, these are judges for my state. I know what's best yeah. for my state. Um, and conservatives, that's usually their M.O., right? States know what's best, right. but not in this situation. Chuck Grassley, Minnesota had a nominee um, for their circuit, and there are two Democratic senators there. And Chuck Grassley was like, turn in your blue slips. And they're like, no, this is an extreme nominee. We don't like this person at all. And so Chuck Grassley said, forget this 100-year-long tradition. We're getting rid of it um, because wow. I said so. And we're just going to go ahead with this nominee. So it's basically become... The president's, um, you know, uh, uh, judiciary completely and Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell are just letting these people through, um, getting rid of every single um, tradition and um, norm that we've ever had to make sure that the judiciary wasn't so politicized. So it's very scary right now how much that they have, you know, taken away from the people and taken away from making sure that our judiciary is bipartisan and really just made it the president's court. Yeah. Well, and I know, you know, another thing about all of this is that some folks have said that it sort of um, legitimizes Islamophobia. What would you say to that? And I guess what's the argument to be made for that for people who are like, well, this doesn't really affect me personally? Uh, what's the quote? I can't remember. First, they came for the blank and mm-hmm. then and I, w- I kept silent. And then they came for me and no one was there to help me. Mm. I'm like terribly paraphrasing. But, you know, <laughs> it's it's really we're seeing uh, minority group after minority group being attacked, whether it's the Mexicans and mm-hmm. um, people from South America, you know, pe- refugees, no matter yeah. what country you're coming from. We're, we're, we're accepting less refugees than we have in I don't even know how long, um, you know, Muslims coming from um, different countries and forget Muslims coming from those countries. If you are, uh, you know, uh, 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 just white coming from you know one of these countries you're not going to be able to come over here either if you right. have that passport um and then we have women under attack you know how do we get rid of choice and the women's right to autonomy and that yeah. takes away from women's power uh, a woman's ability to take um jobs and and provide for their families economic justice for women um so we're seeing attacks across the board and and the question really is who's next right um 
after they've taken care of making sure that immigrants have have no rights and Muslims have no rights and women have no rights, who who's next? Yeah. Um, so if we're going to think of it as how it affects us, that's one way. And it's also what kind of world do we want our children to come into? Right. Um, when we're we're starting to think about raising families or we are raising families, what is that precedent that we're setting um, in terms of accepting all and building a world for everyone um, versus, you know, each man for themselves? And how do we just make sure that we're taking care of ourselves? Like, you know, what are those values that our country still holds? And what's the soul of this country anymore? Um, I was in uh, Europe a couple of weeks ago and, you know, they were asking what has happened to America's values. And, huh. and that was, you know, that was depressing and it was sad because yeah. I know that we have people here who still want to see an America for all. Our Statue of Liberty stands tall for that reason. Um, and we need to just we just need to make sure that this president doesn't ruin that for all of us and that we're holding, you know, Republican um, Congress mem- members uh, accountable for yeah. how they are feeding into this rhetoric and this narrative and this discriminatory um, agenda. And then we also hold Democrats um, responsible for for saving what's left. You know, to your to your first point in that uh, uh, take, there have been so many different people that have faced uh, discrimination that, like, I know that there have been a lot of people who like kind of forgot about the travel ban Mm. because, like, we've been in this. I don't want to say bubble, but like we've been dealing with this whole issue of of separating families at the border, right? Like that's that's what all of our attention has been on for the past couple of weeks. And then now this pops up. And then we had, you know, LGBT issues with Donald Trump banning transgendered people from the military. And then we had an outbreak of hate crimes uh, against not only Jewish people, but Mm -hmm. African-Americans in the days and weeks after Donald Trump became president. So, like, we've seen so many different people i don't want to say feeling attacked but like have actually been attacked Mm -hmm. yeah uh that like you sort of lose track of it all Mm -hmm. and i hate to say that but yeah yeah well i think that's what they're hoping for right right? um i was i was at a rally last week and i was emceeing and, and that's what i said to everyone before we left i was like they want us to burn out they want that that's that's their hope if we burn out um, if we lose track, then they get to get more stuff done. Just like with these um, judicial nominees, we're not paying attention to that when yeah. we have a family separated, when LGBT rights are at risk, and when women's rights are at risk, when all of these terrible things are happening and there are fires everywhere. Um, we're not paying attention to the legalese of things. Um, and yet they're getting these people through in the last decades. Um, and I think that's what they're hoping for. They know that the news cycle cannot cover it all. Um, yeah. And then they've and we've seen them intentionally also break into the news cycle um, when they want to distract from something. The Russia investigation is happening. So they're like, here's another executive order doing something really discriminatory. So you guys talk about that and you don't talk about Russia. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, they're constantly doing this. And I, we just have to do our best to focus. We have yeah. to do our best to um, pay attention. And, you know, luckily there are advocacy groups that have the tools that they're like, hey, on immigration, here are the five things you could be doing right now. Yeah. You know, on women's rights, here are the five things. If you have two minutes, here's the most important two minutes that you should hmm. be spending on doing things. And I think it's important to pay attention to some of those um, to some of those advocacy groups because yeah. we're really, really, really trying to narrow it down because we recognize there's so many things you could be paying attention to um, and hoping that you'll just, uh, you know, take those two minutes to do that that top thing and then recognize that you might have to move on to the next thing because that's right. just the reality of today. Right. Uh, well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like something that um, 
people want to do is help, right? So can you name a few of those advocacy groups or even just a few ways that people could help maybe if they feel compelled to fight against this decision on the travel ban or to bring awareness to what's going on? Like, what are some things people could do in addition to protesting, which people have been doing? Yeah. Since um, so I have to I have to obviously promote my own. Yes, um, so Center for American Progress, we have uh, almost 20 policy teams on every issue that's important to progressives right mm-hmm. now. And each team is really trying to put together these very um, easy to, to handle and easy to digest toolkits and talking points so that it's easy for everyone to know what's happening and where they could plug in. So definitely Amer- uh, Center for American Progress, Generation Progress. We just put to, put out a um, immigration toolkit where it literally says, if you have one minute, click here. If you have two minutes, click here. If you have an hour, click wow. here. That's and awesome. it just really tells you what you could do depending on how much time you have. Um, but there are so many great Muslim and re- refugee groups. There's raises in, in Texas that's doing mm-hmm. such great work um, for immigrant families on the border. Um, and, you know, there, it's important to donate to these groups. Um, progressives have always been uh, have ha- have always had less money than the conservative side. So right. if you have money, uh, <laughs> donate um, to these great groups trying to do great work. Um, but I think really, honestly, the best thing we can do right now is vote and register to vote and register our friends to vote. We think that our friends are registered, but you would be shocked by mm-hmm. how many are not. And given the Ohio purge case that happened, it's more important than ever to make sure you're not removed for, from uh, voter polls. Yeah. Um, that because you didn't vote maybe in the last election or some election or your address changed or your name changed or whatever yeah. might have happened, you're not kicked off the polls and you're not, um, you know, that you're still able to vote. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's good. Hey, everyone. This is Alexi McCammon. I'm a political reporter with Axios filling in for Bill Press. We just had Anisha Singh from the Center for American Progress on with us talking about the travel ban. She gave some great resources about how you can help. You can go to www.americanprogress.org to find those resources. But first... There it is. Sorry. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. I got just a couple of other stories making news this morning. Okay. So the Children's Literature Legacy Award used to be called the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award. It's from the Association for Library Service to Children, and they announced they are changing the name. They are getting rid of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Award because having taken a look at Laura Ingalls Wilder, Ingalls Wilder's writing, she sort of littered her prose with lots of racist words and bad imagery. They point specifically to depictions of American Indians as violent savages. She writes about minstrel shows. And they say, I mean, Laura Ingalls Wilder is one of the best known 
yeah. American writers, and that they are saying, like, no, we are not going to have this award named after her anymore. They are changing it. They put out a statement saying, quote, ALSC has to grapple with the inconsistency between Wilder's legacy and its core value of inclusiveness, integrity, and respect and responsiveness through an award that bears Wilder's name. So they said they are taking her name off of the award. 2018, man. Yeah. Making everyone rethink all of their life choices. Yeah, I mean... Good. I'm okay yeah. with that. I'm all right yeah. with that. We, we, we're going to survive this. This is not going <laughs> to... I is, don't know, Peter. I think this, I need a break. This is not going to damage the Republic so bad that, like, yeah, yeah. She, Speak for yourself. She had some pretty terrible... <laughs> she had some pretty terrible things that she put into print. We go to Miami, Florida. Where else? Where this was stunning. A person captured uh, on video. A man seen on the hood of a speeding black Mercedes-Benz on I-95 in Miami, Florida. On the interstate, a guy was on the hood of the Mercedes-Benz while they were flying down the road. And not only that, the guy was on the cell phone. So... Oh, my goodness. Who was he calling? Who was on the other line? I would love to know how important that phone call was. I hope he was ordering pizza. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, forget, like, calling and asking for help. (laughs) I'm stuck on the hood of a speeding black Mercedes Benz going down I-95, but I got to get out my phone and I got to call somebody about this. Working up an appetite. Was he okay? (laughs) He he was fine. He was fine. He was fine. The police actually did catch up to the... Uh, the Mercedes-Benz. The person that shot the video called 911. Uh, they pulled him over. The guy is fine. Everything's okay. Glad he's okay. Uh, but th- he said the weirdest thing was that the writer and the driver were both pretty calm. There's no big, no big deal. Maybe it wasn't his first time. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe not. Just a, re- a yeah. normal Tuesday night. This right. is what he does for fun. This is what he does for fun. <laughs> How about this? This is a fascinating story. We go to the United Kingdom where they are proposing an idea to ban, ban advertising for junk food on television before 9 p.m. They said that you can sort of hyper-target young children with junk food when they're watching TV with their parents or watching by themselves or whatever. Uh, and they said that they like whatever junk food that they that you advertise, they want to save it to where it doesn't show until after 9 p.m. Now, not only is it just going to be on TV, but they want to target YouTube and Facebook, which have you know live shows and yeah. they have targeted ads, to where they can't run ads for junk food before 9 p.m., which, I mean, look, I, I, I got kids. They watch more TV yeah. on Facebook or YouTube, mostly YouTube, uh, than they do on the actual TV. So, yeah, that makes sense, too. That stuff gets in your head. Totally. But, like, before 9 o'clock, you might not see any ads for any junk food in the United Kingdom. I think I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay with that. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, welcome back. This is Alexi McCammon. Hello. Hi. Filling in for <laughs> Bill Press, who is not here. I am joined by Carolyn Fiddler. Welcome. Carolyn is a political editor and senior communications advisor at Daily Coast. You can follow her at C 
Fid, C-F-I-D-D, on Twitter and see her work at DailyCoastKOS.com. Welcome. Thank you. So Peter and I spent a lot of time talking about um, the primaries in the beginning of the show. Um, I, you just mentioned that state politics is kind of your jam. So I that is not my jam. Can you give me and everyone listening a sort of brief rundown of what the most interesting, maybe surprising, fascinating things that happened last night were at the state level? Uh, I'm super glad you asked. Um, Oklahoma uh, had its yeah. primaries last night. And it was, uh, I mean, just like we saw in New York, uh, a, a longtime incumbent lost to a, an up-and-coming challenger. It was not a great night to be an incumbent in New York, apparently. Um, and uh, even Maloney had her closest call mm-hmm. in, uh, like, basically ever. Yeah. Uh, but in, in Oklahoma... Uh, let's see. Last time I checked, at least six incumbent Republicans had lost their primaries in the state legislature, and another eleven looked to be heading for runoffs. Um, there was no equivalent bloodbath on the Democratic side. Mm. So Oklahoma is seeing uh, something that looks a little bit like a sea change. What? Wait, so there. so there were eleven <laughs> incumbent Republicans facing challengers last night. Uh, for, uh, that that will probably be going to runoffs. Yeah. Could we we talked earlier in the show about like. This myth that progressive or that Democrats have to be moderate, right? Like they have to be tied to Republicans somehow. But like, what is it that's happening in the Republican Party where this is like dangerous for some incumbents? That's that's a, that's an excellent question. Oklahoma. I only ask excellent questions. <laughs> for the record. For the record, it's true. Peter with the Friday mood on a Wednesday. How about that? <laughs> Fact check, true, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'm just curious, like, what it yeah. is that Republican voters see in these uh, conservatives Founders. and are like, mm, no. <laughs> uh, well, uh, in Oklahoma, in the case of Oklahoma, they are facing a very Kansas-like situation. And what I mean by that is that um, the Republicans bankrupted the state, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> by slashing taxes. Fun. And in Oklahoma's case, they over-relied on oil uh, revenues yeah. to uh, to support their state economy and that just didn't hold up uh, nearly as long as they expected it to. So the states ended up in a huge financial hole huh. and uh, education took a massive hit as we saw. That's one of the places where the teachers were on strike yes. uh, earlier this year um, because of because of education cuts and just overall lack of funding thanks to Republicans. Um, and voters in Oklahoma have been laying that blame at the feet of the Republicans running the state. Hmm. Um, their governor is hugely unpopular. Um, there have been uh, a bunch of special elections for the state legislature in Oklahoma already this cycle. Uh, Democrats have flipped four red seats in the legislature already this cycle wow. from, uh, from red to blue. Uh, you guys are very good at Daily Coast <laughs> about tracking that. Tracking, flipping. I'm just I'm going to give a shout out because anytime <laughs> I'm like, I want to see this trend. I'm, you guys are the only place I go to because you track it so well. And it is just so helpful. And I think that it's really easy. Anisha and I were sort of talking about this. It's easy to focus on the immediate federal election happening sure. and not really think about larger implications or bigger picture things. I think state and local elections are something people care about, but it's not as sexy maybe no. as the federal elections. But when... You point out the number of seats that are being flipped, the incumbents who are facing challengers. There is a lot more to the story at the there's, local There's level. so much happening. Um, yeah, I mean, in this cycle especially, uh, the thing that really struck me after Trump got elected was this sudden interest in lower-level uh, elections, yeah. um, state legislative elections especially. Yeah. And I was just like, where did this come from? 
will it last? Yeah. And Where it does it seem to from? have lasted. Uh, that's, that is a good question. Um, in terms of like top down, uh, I think that uh, the sort of uh, maybe establishment in D.C. finally realized that um, we can't just tend to the, the, the executive, the, the top levels of the ballot anymore. Right. The, the long term health of the party depends on its strength at the state level. Right. Building um, that bench. And activists were looking for a way to express their uh their unhappiness with the election of Trump, yeah. and they were able to turn to local elections, most many of which were happening sooner than the next round of federal elections. So you had Virginia, New Jersey, and some special elections last year, and yeah. then um, a lot of state local elections happened like in the spring or in odd years. So there were places for people to step up and and not just you know go out in March. People stepped up to run at the state level and at a level I have never seen before mm. in all my years in yeah. state politics. Yeah. Well, also, I think these issues, you know, people want to see change and they feel like they're not getting any positive change from Congress in Washington. They look to their local state legislature and say, this is how I'm going to get the difference that I want to see in my community, either in my paycheck or with, exactly. you know, my life. I have a, I have a question, actually, because we talked a lot about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who beat Joe Crowley uh, last night, who was the fourth. Who's that? The fourth, the fourth. Did you see, by the way, that at his concession party, he picked up a guitar and sang Born to Run. It was awesome. He went out in style. Yeah, man. no, that's I the way to go. I was very impressed Absolutely. by how polite. He immediately conceded and was like, you know, I thought that was actually, you know, we kind of criticized the Democratic Party a lot yeah. in the beginning. That was actually like, yo, that was that's an awesome hopeful. move. This that was a really helped. great move. Yeah. And it was and, smart. If he wants to get yeah. back into politics, he yes. needed to be all class. Yeah. And he's like pretty young. Yeah. Well, young relative. Young ish. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know. Sure. Yeah. But like we we talked a lot about that uh, already and the fact that she is cut from the Bernie Sanders cloth, right? Like I hate to keep using that, but she's a former Sanders staffer. She, she worked mm-hmm. on the campaign. Uh, she has come out strongly against. I mean, she said abolish ICE, full stop, Yeah, get rid of ICE. Uh, she's talked about Medicare for all. She is very, very, very progressive. So how does that apply across the country? Was that specifically going to work for her race, or do, do you see other Democrats that are sort of adopting that and having some success? What I'm seeing in terms of candidates running this cycle is uh, candidates are stepping up who are who are really great fits for the districts that they're running in. Um, yeah. People are, who have been activists locally for years are finally taking that next step and doing the very hard job of running for office, whether it's state or federal yeah. or wherever. So I think that, I, I mean, this worked, uh, her, her positions worked very well for her district. Yeah. Will they work everywhere? I don't know. But right. uh, that's interesting because the National Democratic Party will say otherwise. They will say, like, these progressive candidates are not a good fit for their district. We need someone, like, to Peter's point earlier, who is more moderate or who, like, a Joe Crowley who has been around, who knows what he's doing. We don't need, like, a progressive newcomer. And you make an interesting point to challenge that, which is that they have been activists at the local level. They know their communities. They know what their community is yearning for, the changes their communities have had. But for, but when I look at polling about what Democratic candidates would talk about from the National Party or even what they're saying or like the folks who they think are the only ones who can win. It's very often people who are not sort of these insurgent newcomers. It's run of the mill moderate candidates. Um, that, that may be the case. But if you look at election results so far this cycle, uh, uh, 
Democrats from all across the spectrum have been winning yeah. because they've been running in their districts. Um, a lot of people asked me last uh, fall, you know, if the Democrats did so well in Virginia at the state legislative level mm-hmm. because they were running against Trump. Hmm. And no, they were running in their districts. They were running on state and local issues. They were running to win those districts to go to Richmond and do different things there because Republicans yeah. in the state had been uh, doing things that were not helpful. They've been obstructing Medi- Medicaid expansion and uh, and uh, pushing right-wing social issues that doesn't help traffic in Danica Rome's district. Yeah, things like that. And so, and we're and we're seeing that. We saw that in Virginia in the generals last fall. We've seen that in special elections. People are running like the Oklahoma successes. Yep. Those folks are running against what Republicans have done to the state. Yeah. Uh, at least two, possibly three of the four state le- the special special election flips. Oklahoma teachers yes that is another fascinating trend to follow especially in these states like Oklahoma where teacher strikes have been huge Kentucky yes a lot of teachers running there yes and they've been winning in various uh, state legislature races and I think that is really important because it is showing again to your point earlier that this is really a local level fight and you know sort of to hell with what's going on in Washington they want change in their communities when they can see it every day you know I think that like that that's a that is the point to make, right? Like they have to fit the district. But I think a lot of times people hear that and think they have to be moderate. Because they because <laughs> the district is made up of Democrats, Republicans, sure. independents. That's, I think, exactly. but it like doesn't always work. I think it gets lost saying. in translation. And I think yeah. you, you mentioned Danica Rome. I think that is the blueprint mm. because there's a lot of stuff that her opponent tried to make the race about. There are a lot of things that she could have made the race about, and she didn't. She yeah. basically just said, our roads are jacked up. Are <laughs> yeah. we going to fix them? Yeah. And I think that message uh, is the is the most powerful one. I don't care. I mean, I do care, but like, you can't make the race about your identity. Yeah. You can't make the race about your personal story. What are you going to do to help me? Huh. Are you going to fix these roads that are a mess? Are you going to make sure that I have health care? Are you going to make sure that my kid can go to college? Right. Are you going to make like, – d- d- give me the issues. Yeah. And take a stand on it and don't try and be everything to everybody. Right. Well, and, and last night in New York 14, uh, Ocasio-Cortez said herself, she's like, the voters in this district wanted to feel heard. Uh, right. They felt like they hadn't been heard in a long time. And she she brought that race – I mean, she ran on some some high-level national issues, but yeah. at the same time, she was she was – speaking directly to voters, and this is what the people in that district wanted her to talk about. Right. And she heard that, and she did that. So. And you mentioned Carolyn Maloney's race earlier. She had a challenger to her left who got pretty close. Relatively. Yeah. Relatively close for how long she's been in office. Um, can you speak a little bit about that race and, like, any lessons you learned from that or things that were surprising to you about... I guess that another incumbent in New York facing a challenger to the left. She didn't lose, like Crowley, but right. again, it it wasn't a blowout. She didn't have a blowout. No, no. Um, and this is, I think, in in, in safely blue districts uh, like like those in New York uh, that we're discussing. I think that, um, well, even like more marginal districts. Um, but last night's Democratic primaries in New York of safely blue state uh, did show us that uh, people are looking for. For, for new and innovative ideas yeah. and uh and, and and Maloney like you know she didn't just sit back and was like my incumbency will protect me she ran she ran right. a she ran a race um and that in the end is 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 uh part of what helped 
preserve her uh, <laughs> her candidacy for the general in the fall, I think. Right. Um, and uh, I, I think that I think that these these new candidates are bringing up these topics for discussion and and starting and generating conversations that uh, that people in districts want to be having. Right. And uh, you know, Maloney's voters decided that she was speaking uh, a, a language that they liked, and so they turned out and brought her back uh, for the general. Yeah. And speaking of um, you know candidates talking about issues that voters like and want to hear. Medicare for all has been a topic that has been dividing some Democrats in various primaries across the country. But it's also been because it's been something that more and more Americans support. And I think we have a clip of Ben Jealous uh, making a comment about that from last night. I will not rest until Medicare for all is law. He means in Maryland, right? Because he can't. Mm-hmm. He's running for governor. Right. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. In yeah. In Maryland. Um, but that, again, running for governor talking about in Maryland speaks to this idea of um, insurgent, uh, you know, progressive challengers being successful at the local level. Um, and, and also, by the way, like you're seeing more and more states being like this thing that's happening on the federal level is not going to apply here. Yeah. This horrible policy, we're not going to adhere to it. Right. Yeah. So like. Governors really are on the hot seat. Governors are on the hot seat. And I know for Ben Jealous, former guest of the show, <laughs> uh, former head of the NAACP, he's got an uphill battle against, like, Larry Hogan's a pretty popular governor. Yeah. Um, but this will be a really good test because Ben Jealous has come out and, and has shown that he is a very progressive candidate. Yeah. And so I'm curious from your perspective, when you are in a race like Ben Jealous where you're facing a pretty serious challenger on the right, um, do you think think like what's your perspective should progressive candidates go all in and be true to their platform and their ideals and what they want to bring to the state do they need to tone it down a little bit if they are in a general that is competitive against a republican who has a solid chance obviously it's case by case but thinking about the country overall i think i think one thing you can apply to democrats running everywhere across the country no matter what is that candidates need to be true to what they believe in authenticity is what is selling this cycle. Yeah. People are voting for... And that seems so simple. Right? It's very straightforward. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, Ocasio-Cortez is not the first Democratic Socialist to to be successful this cycle. Look right. at uh, Lee Carter in mm-hmm. Northern Virginia last yeah. fall. Yeah. Um, that His district is not like, whoa, super liberal. He, he unseated a uh, an incumbent Republican, but he yeah. he's like, this is who I am. This is how I'm running. And voters turned out for him because they're like, okay, we know what this, is, this, this, this guy's about. Um, right. Folks, I think... If, if if someone if a candidate believes in this and and is able to speak to how that benefits his or her district that he or she is running in, yeah, do it. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing I've heard from some folks who work with um, progressive groups to recruit and train progressive candidates across the country, um, this idea that we've been speaking about is that you know people will say, well this district isn't ready for a progressive candidate or it's not a progressive district. Um, but they make the argument that that's just because a progressive candidate hasn't run in that district. Have you seen that or do you agree with that? Um, I think that, again, I go back to keep going back to Virginia because yeah. we had a, a lot of, you know, we had a you know, hundred general elections there uh, last fall, just in, on the state legislative level, plus obviously the three executives. Um, and a lot of those folks are running in seats where Republicans hadn't faced a Democratic challenger in years. Mm-hmm. And um, I think 
I think he'd be hard pressed to call anyone who got elected to uh, the House of Delegates uh, for, for the first time last fall uh, a moderate. Yeah. Um, yep. I think it depends. I think if you, you know, if you go to California, maybe that's a different you have a different sort of metric there. But right. um, in terms of like just general policy positions, no, not yeah. moderates. Yeah. Ralph Northam did not run as a moderate and he cleaned up. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think I think that these candidates ran the races they wanted to run. They ran on things that they believed in. They wanted to bring the change uh, that they wanted to see to Richmond. Right. And they, they ran as those candidates, and a right. lot of them won. Right. Well, and a lot of them look a lot different than uh, candidates and lawmakers have looked, which is really heartening. And, I mean, even last night, there were two black women Republican candidates running, which, like, I say that as a young black woman and recognizing that there is only one black woman Republican in Congress currently, Mia Love. And I think there are something like seven black women running as Republicans this cycle, Um at least one has lost, or two, I guess if you include one last night, but one woman who was running, um, Liz Mattery, she won last night. And I think that's um, exciting when we're thinking about making both sides of the aisle mm-hmm. more diverse moving forward. But that's something we saw at the state level in Virginia elections in 2017, was there was a whole host of folks who won these elections who uh, are part of the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. who don't, who are not old white men. Um, Virginia's first uh, Latinas in the legislature. And it's, tw- it's 2018. Right? I guess it was yeah. 2017 then. Still. That's, isn't that <laughs> wi- that's just wild to me. And I think it's something that... People are aware of, but every time I hear, and I'm aware of it, but every time I hear it, I'm sort of like, I cannot believe that we are still like, oh, the first. Same with Ocasio-Cortez. She would be the youngest woman elected to Congress at 28. And like, age is another form of diversity that we need in Congress. Um, What do you think is, is encouraging voters to be more open to supporting candidates who are the first, who are diverse, who are sort of... uh, trend setting in this way? Well, I think a lot of it is the the, uh, availability of those candidates. Like those folks weren't necessarily running a few cycles ago. I think I think there were a lot I think there were a lot more perceived barriers to entry into uh, into running for office. Yeah. Um, And I think Trump's victory for all its ill effects, obviously, I think that removed a lot of them. I think a lot of people looked at him like if he can get elected. Why, why can't I run? Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not perfect. I'm the, not the most polished speaker, but oh my God, he just opened his mouth and this crap fell out. I've only paid, I can run for I, I've only paid two porn stars to keep them quiet <laughs> about our affair. Not as many as him. Peter. Why couldn't I be elected? You know, I, when I talk to some candidates, like I mentioned the story earlier, I talked to some of the um, black women who are running as Democrats for the House of Representatives. A couple of them said to me, like, you will not believe and President Trump will not believe what he has done for my campaign. They basically were saying what you just said. Like, I don't feel afraid to run. I feel like I can say whatever I want. I can be true to myself. Yes. Like, who cares that a black person and has never run? are responding to that. Yes, because it speaks to this authenticity, again, of people don't want to be uh, just fed partisan talking points anymore. They want people who are real, even if they look different. They want people who are genuine. Carefully, and, and I think a little carefully bit of a, crafted, workshop focused right. group messaging. <laughs> well, and I, and I wonder if work. and I wonder if part of it might even be a little bit of sort of uh, nostalgia for for the Obama era. I mean, mm. he, part of his success yeah. is people like believed in him. Yeah, and people are are kind of looking for that. Yeah. Um, 
but they're not looking for like some huge inspirational figure. They they want someone they can believe in as a real human that they can relate to. Right. And uh, and candidates are giving people that, and voters are absolutely responding. Right. And going back to your point at the start of your segment, um, you talked about all the Republican incumbents who were facing challengers going into runoffs. We know what the um, the progressive challengers look like on the Democratic side. What do these insurgent Republican challengers look like? What's their thing? That's an excellent question. Um, they they a lot of well, the Tea Party is still alive and well. Um, uh, some of these uh, folks face challengers from the right. Um, mm. There was. I, b- I believe one of the one of the winners last night who ousted uh, an incumbent Republican in Oklahoma, you know, is is a veterinarian who's kind of an anti-vaxxer apparently. Like, yeah, uh, hmm. uh, I, I, their Republicans are, aren't facing challengers from their left. Yeah. They're not being forced into more moderate positions in their primaries. Huh. They're still facing challengers from the right. Yeah. Um, they're facing challengers. And we've seen that in congressional uh, primaries as well. They're facing yes. challengers who are like, I will support Trump. This guy is inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing or sort of fascinating because you see, and we talked about this earlier too, like how Republican candidates across the country, their strategy often is being a Trump clone saying the same phrases that he says, calling the Mueller investigation a witch hunt, saying they're going to drain the swamp. Um, I think it was in West Virginia, one of the Senate candidates was actually campaigning with a cardboard cutout of Trump. But they'll all try to be these different degrees Mm. of Trump. Um, And then then that radicalizes some of these far-right challengers who are coming out and and going to the extremes. Right. And... uh... You know, we'll see how this plays out in the general election in a state as red as Oklahoma in the fall. Yeah. But like I said, in special elections so far, that is that that extreme right wing position is not panned out for Republicans there. Yeah. Um, but uh, do you think that Republicans should denounce those far right candidates more than they are? I know when we saw Corey Stewart in <laughs> Virginia, right, the, the Republican Party, the NRSC hasn't said anything. Right. About it. They kind of want him to go away. They, they figure yeah. Kane has has that seat locked up, and they right. just they're just hoping that they can just go la la la. Right. Corey do, Stewart. Do you think that that encourages more far right candidates to run? I would sort of think that if the National Party isn't condemning one of you, then why why if I were a far right candidate, why would I feel right. hindered from running? Well, honestly, I think the National Party knows that if they were to condemn these far right candidates, I think more would like come out of the woodwork, yeah. just you know, in a in a, in a fit of peak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I think that the Republican Party is aware of the problem that that it has created for itself and kind of and yeah. in, 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 uh, attaching itself to Trump and 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 being forced to you know be the party of Trump. Right. And they they can't think of a way to fix it. And that, is yeah. there a way to fix it? I don't think so. I yeah. mean, you have folks who have stood up to Trump on on some things, not even very much. And they're either retiring because they probably won't win their primary or you have a Sanford who just like, oops, right. I'm done. Right. Yeah. Um, and also you mentioned earlier this idea of uh, state cuts to education and the national issues focus on the economy and healthcare. What are some of the other issues outside of that that you're seeing have been a really big factor in these state crises? Uh, Education is a huge one, yeah. and that and that has always been sort of a a, a top shelf uh, like state level issue. But uh, that is far from the only thing. Uh, Medicaid expansion uh, is is another yeah. thing. We saw that resonate in Virginia last fall, and we saw what happened just uh, not all that long ago in the legislature there. Yeah, very exciting. Um, as a Virginian, I'm very. Oh, you're very, from Virginia. I am. I am. So that that felt really good to see yeah. that happen. Yeah. 
Um, I would but, imagine gun control is becoming right. an issue of various states yes. too. Uh, gun control and and even like it's less sac- sexy, but like, like sort of general tax policies. People mm. are and and that really goes into the education thing too because that very directly affects that. But yeah, uh, also transportation, huh. the condition of like roads and bridges. Yeah. Like no one wants another bridge collapse. Minnesota still remembers that. Right. It wasn't that well, long we've ago. Well, we had so many infrastructure weeks. Yeah. What do you mean? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Is it still infrastructure? <laughs> it's, 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 it's been it's infrastructure week for a year and a half. It's always infrastructure week. <laughs> Time is a flat circle. It, <laughs> yeah. it will always be infrastructure week. <laughs> uh, well, Carolyn Fiddler, thank you so much. Are there any state races we should watch or everyone should be looking up oh, to? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, the big the big um, special elections are mostly uh, behind us. Yeah. Uh, I think we're, we're there's still some very interesting primaries to come, but the Wisconsin special elections yeah. uh, on the 12th were, were a big deal Great. where we flipped the state senate race. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we will be back in just Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Alexi McCammon, a political reporter with Axios, filling in for Bill Press. I am joined now by Jessica Schulberg, a foreign policy and national security reporter for Huffington Post. Hi, Jess. Hello. Thanks for being here. You Thank can follow you. Jess on Twitter at Jessica Schulb, S-C-H-U-L-B, and see her work at HuffPost.com. Um, well, Peter and I talked earlier, so I'll fill you in on this since okay. we were just talking about our dogs, that there is this horrible story about a dog, a lab mix named I Duke, think I can hear this. who was accidentally put <laughs> no, up for adoption. It has a happy ending, right? We should point it out. It has it, a it, happy before ending. Before we get into this, it has a happy ending. Okay, but... It's yeah. traumatizing. He was accidentally. accidentally put over adoption because his owners were hospitalized. And the medics, like, showed up to the house. They were trying to get the owners to the hospital. In the mix of it all, there was miscommunication. The dog ended up in an animal hospital and then in an adoption facility, shelter. Luckily, he's been reunited with his owners. But I, we were talking earlier, and you've met my dog, Marlon, yeah. and yeah. he's met Ollie, your dog. Yeah. And I was like, Marlon would not survive accidental adoption. He would be so anxious. He'd oh, just Ollie would die. be fine. He'd be like, oh, you're my new family. It's <laughs> yeah. great. I have, I have to say, both of you, I follow both of you on the Instagram as as uh, such good co- dog content. He's like you my provide Both story. of you provide such good dog content. Such a good dog. Yeah. Well, they're, they're good dogs. Jess's your, dog. Your dog. Why didn't you bring your dog? Yeah, in? you have a very good dog. Too. Last time uh, that Jessica was in, I brought my <gasps> good dog in, and he was like climbing into my lap the whole oh my time. God. He's a big dog. Yeah, he's a pudding. Yes, politics. He's yeah. a big dog, but he's a he's a big pudding. He's easy. Well, so Jess's dog just had a banner weekend. He was huh? very adventurous. Six Wait, mile really? Hike. Six wow. miles. Mm-hmm. He went swimming. Wow. Watched the World Cup. Oh my God. Yeah. Me. I'm not a good pet. He's a he, was, <laughs> he was being babysat by my much more adventurous friends. <laughs> that, that's what Marlon needs. The vet, last time I saw him, told me that my dog was fat. He was a little chubby. Oh, no. He's a miniature schnauzer, and I was like, he just has a big like butt. And he's shaming. like, no, he's like, he's a little chubby. He's like one pound away from being the maximum weight <laughs> a miniature schnauzer should be. And I was like, well, he's a Midwestern like, dog. So he has he's outsized portions, sir. <laughs> yes, we're on the East Coast, but he gets outsized portions. He's a Midwestern dog. He's not chubby. He's just tickling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's just from Illinois. Yeah. Leave him alone. He was eating his dinner of rib tips last night, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he's fine. Yeah. So now I've tried this new thing where I'm giving him set portions of food, but then I feel so badly when I see the bowl is empty, Aww. and I'm like, oh, here you have more. And Drink that, some like, water. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. That's so. called enabling. I know. But, but it, that's okay. 
Yeah, he's fine. He's he survived fine. five years on this diet. He'll survive another five. Yeah. I hope. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, we should stop talking about dogs. And instead, we should talk about, um, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, Peter and I, just this like ongoing civility debate that we've been having, not only on Twitter, especially on Twitter, but I think across the country. And a lot of people have been making false equivalencies and, and debating this idea of what is civil discourse and behavior and what is not and who does it apply to. And Sarah Sanders, I think, is probably the clearest example of this. Um, you know, I'm sure you saw that now she's going to have secret service detail. Sure. Are you surprised by that? <laughs> Doesn't like everyone in the Trump administration have detail? Like like his extended family's yeah. sisters, brothers, kids, like I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. Like I can't get that revved up about it. It's a waste of money, but this government's wasting so much more money that like if she wants extra guards, that's fine. Right. I'm sure there's a lot of people who probably want to do something bad to her, so And we were saying that that those threats against her probably existed before this. So mm-hmm. if the Secret Service makes her feel better, it makes her feel better, but we, you have know, this, the, we have this hunch in my office, like DHS has been saying that there's like all these attacks against DHS and they're like, there's all these stories about like decapitated like animal carcasses like showing up on cars. What? But they like never give you any specifics about like what type of animal or like actual <laughs> data to prove that or this photos. is like an increase or ramp up. Yeah. So we're it's all kind of like, it's a stunt. make this up? That would be wild. Like, uh, using dead animal carcasses to sort of protest or show your disagreement with someone is not disgusting. Um, But you brought up this interesting idea when we were talking yesterday about protests becoming a form of like personal confrontation. Um, We saw this with Kristen Nielsen when she went to the Mexican restaurant here in D.C. and protesters showed up and essentially shouted her out of the restaurant. I think um, they played the audio, right? The ProPublica audio of the yes, kids crying. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. eating her, her tacos. Right, which, like, you have to ask why go to a Mexican restaurant so when all that is well, happening. We, the Mexican food here is not good. No, like, it's you not. Know, right, right. Go, you know. Right. Well, we, like, we had talked about this before, right? Like, Scott Pruitt, after they announced that they were pulling out of the Paris Accord, Scott Pruitt went to Le Diplomat. He went to a French mm-hmm. restaurant. After Kirsten Nielsen went up in front of America and defended the policy of ripping children away from their families, she went to a Mexican restaurant. Like, obviously the optics are bad, but I also think that they are governing by trolling. I think mm. it was an. I think it was an absolutely. They did it on purpose. Scott Pruitt does not know Le Diplomat is French. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair, Didn't fair. he like live on 14th Street? He's like, this is where the rich people go. Like, give yeah. me some rosé. Fair. <laughs> give me some rosé. <laughs> that is very good. Um, but we have seen this idea of like, pro- or not this idea. We've seen protests become a personal confrontation. Um, there were uh, Stephen Miller's phone number was released. He was getting all these crazy text messages. I was told that that same evening he had to have his phone number changed by, you know, Folks within the IT department, which makes sense. And then yesterday, I think his phone our- number, by the way, his phone number has officially been changed. I only know that because I was texting him relentlessly. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And then what your text? Do, just do, you want, back. do you want to read some of these text messages, Peter? Well, it showed yeah. that they were like delivered, and then I tried to send it uh, the other day, and it's like I got the green bubble. So oh man, it's been changed. Green bubble of time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, now yeah. people are putting wanted posters for him mm-hmm. with like I don't know if it's his address, but it's like last seen on this address on I Street. Um, which I think would increase the threat. So when we're thinking about like all these conversations about civility, like 
Do you think that protest as a form of personal confrontation is going too far with people in the Trump administration? Uh, like doxing people, putting their addresses out. Yeah, phone numbers, like I have a hard time getting too upset about because it's if you have access to a lot of databases, phone numbers are public, which is the same with addresses, by the way. Yeah. Um, I would never post someone's personal address as a reporter yeah. who's had her address posted by a bunch of oh, wow. Nazi Trump supporting morons. Like that's not something I would um, do to somebody else. But I think I don't think that's like the overwhelming I don't think we're seeing that so overwhelmingly. I don't think a lot of people are expressing their dissent by doxing people in the Trump administration. I think the idea is to sort of make it so that they can't be comfortable in public spaces. It's this idea mm-hmm. that if you spend your whole day defending this policy of separating infants from their parents and putting them in cages and saying that it's necessary to protect national security and actually it was because of this random Supreme Court law that we can't do anything about. Like if you're going to do horrible things, and then lie about it all day to the American people. I can't get too upset when um, a public citizen, a restaurant owner, uh, just a, a random person, a Democratic Socialist of America, I can't get too upset when they decide, like, you don't have the right to dine among me. You don't have the right to dine alongside me in peace. You know, I mean, right. nobody's forcing Sarah or Chris, Kirsten Nielsen or any of these people to do these things. And if the consequences that people around them are going to remind them that they're doing terrible shit all day, like I'm, I'm comfortable with that. And the interesting thing, too, is how the president uses Twitter to sort of like be in everyone's homes and their phones, mm-hmm. have this direct line of communication with people that I would imagine makes Americans all over the country, whether or not they agree with him, feel like they have this more direct line of communication with mm-hmm. the president and those around him. So when they see someone like Sarah Sanders or Kirsten Nielsen in person, mm-hmm. maybe for the first time, they they might feel more emboldened to go up because there is this sort of more lax relationship between right. the administration so and people. Yeah. Yeah. But like, let, let's not forget that the big crime here that was done against Sarah Huckabee Sanders is that she was politely asked to leave a very fancy restaurant. Like, so politely. Like, they pulled her outside separately so as not to make a scene. And yeah. we're like, you know, our restaurant has all these values. Like, we hire gay people. And you tr- you defended having transgender people kicked out of yeah. the military. Like, yeah. they don't feel comfortable serving you. Like, the, the staff, like, gathered <laughs> with the owner and had this discussion. Like, we don't feel comfortable. We'd prefer her to leave. It wasn't, like, a mob protest. And... And like that now they're so upset and they think that this is going to be like the coming revolution where Democrats, you know, right. start attacking Thought Republicans. Police, culture police. And what's interesting is like all the, the counter narratives, like the, the whole idea, do you really want to live in a society where the opposition or um, you get policed based on your politics and you are told that you can't occupy public spaces because of what you believe in? I think it was Michelle Goldberg, but it might have been someone else who's like, yeah, that already happens when women go to abortion clinics and have right. to like yeah. tear through 50 Protesters. crazy people waving bloody fetuses in their face. You know, yeah. like this isn't yeah. it, it's not like the the people who are asking Sarah or Kirsten to leave restaurants are like violating some norm. I mean, if we want to talk about like civility and making people comfortable in public spaces, like the president's entire platform is to like make people he doesn't agree with deeply uncomfortable by tweeting horrible things about them to his millions of followers from his perch as the president of the United States. I mean, that's what really gets me upset is all the people who are the so-called victims here are people with tremendous amounts of power who have chosen to occupy these positions of power. And if they're going to be held accountable for what they do in those positions of power by people who are not as powerful, and that's going to make them uncomfortable, like, you know what I have to say to that? Like, 
all right, cool. Like, you don't have to do this. Right, right. And I think that's the underlying argument for a lot of these people who are critics of Sarah Sanders and others is that, like, you don't have to be doing this. But it is something that they enjoy doing. And that's something that's just this idea that, like, suddenly, and Peter made this point earlier, that with Sarah Sanders, this is, like, the first time that this is happening Mm -hmm. and we have to stop it. Like, this lane has been open for decades where, whether it's abortion clinics or anything else, being denied a cake because you're gay. Like, this has been open and has been happening for so long. And I don't know that I'm necessarily in favor of perpetuating this. Like, I am maybe rose-colored glasses and someone who's like, I I want us to get to a point where we can live civilly and coexist and have more civil discourse in politics. But that is just not the case. And, um, you know, one of my friends, Ested, who works at the New York Times, had this great Twitter thread that I should pull up that's basically this idea that President Trump, perhaps more than anyone else, understands the enraged public Mm -hmm. that exists now more than ever and that civil public discourse is not necessarily something we should even fetishize or work toward but there is this idea of sort of fetishizing civility and civil discourse at a time when the president himself and everyone around him throws that to the wind and is not only not politically correct but they throw personal attacks against people They ostracize people who they consider to be the other or those who don't look like them or those who don't follow their beliefs and their agenda in a way that has become the norm until it applies Mm -hmm. to them. them. I'd also I'd sort of like back up because you mentioned the not serving a cake to same sex couples. I, I, I think I saw that comparison a lot and I don't even think it's that valid of a comparison because in that case you see a business owner saying I'm not going to serve you because you're gay which is the same as saying I'm not going to serve you because you're black or because you're a woman or because you're Jewish and that's obviously bad and we shouldn't do that nobody's saying to Sarah I'm not serving you because you're a woman they're not even saying I'm not serving you because you're in the Trump administration they're saying I'm not going to serve you because you spent your entire day lying about doing like atrocious human rights violations, things that are the UN is saying you need to stop doing this, things that if yeah. other countries were doing, we would accuse them of being like third world dictators. I mean, this isn't this isn't this isn't the time for civility. This isn't like, oh, let's all just get along, like, oh, it's okay. Like this is people who don't have a lot of power are searching for the smallest ways in which they can tell people who do have power that you are doing reprehensible, horrible, inexcusable things that just, I'm sorry, don't merit like a civil, like let's just sit down and talk about like, maybe it's good to lock children up in cage and detain them and separate them from their parents. But like on the other hand, maybe not. Like let's just <laughs> chat about it over some tacos. Like, yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is like, the, the, there have been protests consistently since Trump became mm-hmm. president for a number of things that have drawn hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. across the world with the women's marches, science marches, tax day marches, any number of things where you would imagine like the strength in numbers is more threatening to the administration. But then you have this instance where Sarah Sanders is asked politely to leave by one or a couple of people from this restaurant in a way mm-hmm. that is not threatening, um, that is by a very small number of people but it is instead has this reaction from the administration and Republicans and conservatives 
that almost makes those larger protests seem like it wasn't threatening to mm-hmm. them, which is... Well, because those larger protests, like, they can watch it from locked within their apartment on City Center if you're Stephen Miller or from within the White House. Like, you don't have to personally answer to that. Maybe that's yeah. a day that you're like, you know what, I'm just going to watch a lot of Netflix today. I'm not going to go outside. I'm not going to talk to the women in their pussy hats. Yeah. Whereas, and you expect it. It's planned. You you kind of, like, run your day around it. Um there's so many people that it doesn't feel like they're actually speaking to you. And this isn't to say that I don't think the Women's March was impactful. I think it was like tremendously powerful the day after the inauguration yeah. to see this huge backlash. Um, but I think there's something uniquely powerful about just like one human being going up to another human being and being like, you know what, like what you're doing isn't okay. And we're, because of that, we're not going to allow you to do this like one thing that we have some power over, which is letting you eat at this Mexican food restaurant in peace. So. Right. Well, and that's the interesting thing, too, is that she stands from that podium and never mm-hmm. really has to engage in a discussion. Right. And even if she faces backlash or criticism from reporters who are asking tough questions and asking her mm-hmm. to explain these controversial things, she, she still <laughs> has the power to move on, mm-hmm. to ignore it, to spin mm-hmm. it. To not call them again. To not call them again. She has all the power in that room. Right. And, and it is this very one-sided communication, whether it's the president's tweets, which we talked about earlier, or Sarah Sanders standing from the podium every day or whenever she does the press briefing, where it is a one-sided conversation and they rarely are confronted with having to actually explain or at least engage in a discussion about their decision-making. And if they do, they're engaging in a discussion with Jim Acosta, who is also a powerful person, who also has a huge platform and who is doing important work, but, you know, that's not... Uh, a server at a restaurant three hours south of here in Virginia. Like, that's kind of what I keep coming back to is people overlooking this huge power dynamic. These are people who are the victims of what a government that was elected by less than 50% of the people is doing. They have no control over it. And so if they happen to cross paths, like, I think this is a perfectly reasonable form of exercising what limited power they have. I mean, they don't get to go to the briefing room. They don't get to confront Sarah on these policies. Right. And this is sort of a chance to say, hey, it's not okay. Right. Do you think, like, where do we go from here in terms of political debate and discussions? I sort of increasingly feel jaded and, like, I'm like, this is never going to get resolved. I think largely because Mm -hmm. of, and it makes me sound old, and I'm not, like, the internet and social media. I think people just do not know how to have conversations. I think we are um, allowed to, to be in our own bubbles and to sit from our positions of power though they are relative, me sitting behind a keyboard allows me to only put out my opinion and I never have to engage in an actual discussion with someone, mm-hmm. whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or even in the things that we write. Um, Sarah Sanders, Trump, they all have the same power. Where do you think we go from here when we are seeing protests becoming personal confrontation that although is maybe initiating a conversation that wouldn't have happened otherwise because these people, like you said, are not in the briefing room, they're not they don't have access to these people normally um, is really sort of a one-sided discussion. Oh, yeah, or is the even, argument that I it is? I don't necessarily think that those forms of protest are about initiating conversations. Like, I'm not trying to pretend like, oh, yeah. she's just trying to like start a discourse. Like, I don't think that's the goal at all. I think, especially when you look at the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and they're yeah. them playing the audio, the ProPublica audio, the children crying at MXDC. I don't think they're trying to have a chat with the Secretary of Homeland Security about this. I think they're trying to make her feel deeply, deeply, deeply uncomfortable um, about occupying public space after doing after representing the policies that she's representing. So I don't think that's about starting a conversation 
Um, I think it's about making people feel held accountable for doing bad things. And I'm okay with that, by the way. Right. I have no problem with that. Totally okay with that. In terms of like, I think what you described as us sort of sitting in a bubble and not really having to engage with anyone who challenges our opinion, I think that's also a problem. But I don't think the internet precludes us from not being in a bubble. I think it makes it very easy to form a bubble and you just follow accounts that you like and you just talk to the people that you like and you like ignore all. The problem is a lot of the dissenting opinion you get is like crazy frog people with American (laughs) flags being like you're going to be burnt in an oven Jew, you know? So like I think it's just important to kind of self-monitor your interactions with people and make sure that you are reaching out across a broader spectrum and that yeah, I think the internet doesn't necessarily prevent that from happening. I mean, the internet also allows you to explore all these ideas that we didn't before. I, I don't think right. in like the golden days of pre-internet, we were all just like engaged in some beautiful civil discourse where like we all talked all the time. Like, why do you disagree with me? Like, I don't know. Like everyone sort of romanticized yeah. the Martin Luther King era as this beautiful, peaceful civil protest where he was just like the most civil, beloved man who quietly yeah. and peacefully was like, maybe you should like let black people sit in the front of the bus. Like that's not what happened. Right. Like. The FBI was targeting him. He was seen as this huge agitator. I right. mean, white people were not comfortable with what he was doing and what he was doing, what Rosa Parks were doing, what all the big civil rights protest leaders of the time were doing was making white people feel uncomfortable <laughs> for right. what they were doing to black people. And that was a good thing. Like if a group of yeah. people is doing something terrible, they should be made uncomfortable for doing that. Yeah. So do you think there is progress to be made then in making folks feel uncomfortable? Yeah, yeah. I do. And I think that's something that a lot of people, especially I mean, like Trump doesn't feel shame. Like you can, you can like embarrass Trump, I guess. You can like humiliate him, maybe, but he doesn't feel, as far as I can tell, shame. I do think that members of his cabinet like are still able to be like embarrassed, maybe not even regretful or remorseful, but I do think that they're they respond to this public shaming in a way uh, that's meaningful, right? Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit. The guests earlier, um, Anisha and I were talking about the um, SCOTUS decision on the travel ban, and she was saying that the the Supreme Court, but also the Trump administration, use this idea of national security as sort of like a blanket um, justification for things, and Justice Sotomayor used that in her dissent, saying, you know, if you use national security as a facade, these things can move forward easier. Um, so I guess whether it's thinking about separating families at the border or the travel ban or you have this piece on um you know trump officials are split on whether to recommend releasing a man from guantanamo in that process of who gets to be released there there is this justification of national security um i guess one like what sort of precedent do you think that's setting and then two i'd love for you to just talk briefly about this piece that you wrote about guantanamo and sort of how they are really kind of messing up this process for releasing folks on the national security argument sort of like um preempting any sort of actual judicial review like that we have president obama to think for that we have president bush to think for that i mean since 9-11 we've seen like this massive expansion of what types of things the executive branch is able to do whether that's spying on americans whether that's killing americans abroad without actually accusing them publicly and trying them and finding them guilty of a crime Um, And we've seen so many court cases brought by the ACLU on these issues um, that just get shut down before they even go to trial because the government essentially argues, like, 
you know, you, the court, do you really want to infringe upon the president's ability to, you know, conduct foreign policy and deal with matters of national security? Oh, and by the way, if we do litigate this matter, we can't even really do it because we would have to disclose matters that are really sensitive or classified. So we couldn't even really get into this, like, sorry, game over. And the government's won a lot of those cases. Yeah. Um, I'm frankly shocked that they would even go down that road with this because there's just absolutely not a shred of evidence that this policy makes us safer or is actually a response to a national security threat. I mean, the president has said that this is a response to wanting to keep Muslims out of the country, but I guess in the last guest already covered that extensively, <laughs> so I will move on. Uh, the story I wrote last week was about the periodic review board process which is basically the only way that Guantanamo detainees can get out of prison. Um, I say basically because technically they could go to a federal court in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They couldn't go, but their lawyers could go to a federal court in the U.S. um, and file a habeas petition, which is basically saying my imprisonment is unlawful. You have to let me out. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court doesn't move quickly on that. It's a handful of people that have gone out that way. But the PRB, the Periodic Review Board, was set up by Obama in 2011. And the idea was that they have these periodic hearings before a panel with people from DOD, the State Department, the Defense Department, the intelligence community, all those guys. Um, And they have this kind of parole-style hearing. And it's not like a hearing to determine guilt or innocence. Like, basically, the detainee is supposed to go up there and say, I'm really sorry that um, I did all these things you accused me of doing. I'm not going to do it anymore. I have my family waiting back home for me. Like, I'm going to go be, like, a really good worker somewhere. Yeah. Um, And then this board either decides to detain them indefinitely without charge, because that's who all these guys are. The people who get these hearings are people who have no charges against them, um, or to clear them for release. Under Obama, the guys that were cleared for release eventually would get out. Sometimes it would take a very long time, but for the most part, they got out. Um, Under Trump, that's not happening anymore. We have five guys who this big bureaucratic panel has said, you no longer pose a threat. We can let you out. Hmm. And that was years ago, and they're just sitting there uh, stuck. So we're going to commercial. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to cut you off, but everyone should check this out. HuffPost.com. Trump officials split on whether to recommend releasing a man from Guantanamo. Jess Schulberg, thank you so much for coming. Yay. So much more to talk about, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, you will see Bill Press, not me, next time. And I hope you all have a great day. This is The Bill Press Show.